Good morning. Today we'll look at three historical books. Our second to last class in the Old Testament. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So find Ezra with me. It's after Chronicles. And these three books take place at a wonderful time in the Jewish history after their return from the exile. And yet, at the same time, it feels as if the promise has not fully been fulfilled. That is, they haven't received all of what God has intended, that all the nations of the earth are blessed through them. So, it leaves us asking the question, what's going on here? Is God still working? Is God still going to follow through on this promise? Or is this it? Is this all that they have to look forward to? We'll begin in Ezra chapter 1, but let me pray before we uh, start. Lord, thank You for this resurrection morning that we can celebrate. We come on the first day of the week, each week, because of the resurrection. And we especially reflect on the resurrection of Christ um, this holiday. And so we're grateful for our Savior and for the opportunity for us to celebrate that resurrection, that He did not stay dead, but that He was risen from the dead and that He became the first fruits among uh, those who are trusting in Him. And so we can be confident that we also will be raised to uh, new life, to eternal life. We thank You that He now lives for us and that He ever lives to intercede on our behalf and that the Holy Spirit does the same, that He is constantly interceding for us so that when we don't know how to pray, we don't know what to pray, that the Spirit prays in our behalf. And um, we're thankful for that. We pray that we would not uh, give up our, on our responsibility to pray, however, but that we would continue and to work hard in it. And that we would be able to see Your purposes in the world, at least the ones that You make clear to us and the ones that we can't see. We can't see what You're doing. Uh, we ask for Your grace and uh, for Your mercy as we seek to... Um, obey You and follow You even when we don't understand when things don't seem to make sense. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. morning. Well, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were originally constituted as one book. And so we'll take uh, both of those books together today. Ezra is a priest and uh, he is likely the one's the one who assembled these two books together into one. And this book spans a large period of time between, a long period of time between 538 BC and, and about a hundred years after that. And, um, Ezra himself gives us the historical context in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Remember, the Jews had just been in exile for 70 years, and here's what we read in verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people... May his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. 
Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. We have similar wording there that you saw in verse one, one page back in your book in your Bibles. Turn to Second Chronicles chapter thirty six. And you'll notice that um, the writer of the Chronicles, which likely was Ezra as well, writes the very same thing about Cyrus, king of Persia, verse 22. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, same thing in Ezra 1.1, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom, saying, and he gives basically the same uh, sort of idea there. So, what we see there is that God is working through a pagan king. That God actually stirs up the heart of this man Cyrus who is, who is this Persian, Persian king. And he, he does so in order to send the Jews back home. This first wave of Jewish exiles come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And that's probably what, what is being talked about in Psalm chapter 126, verses 1-3. through 3. I'll read those for you. Psalm 126, 1-3 says, When the Lord brought back the captives, captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with joyful shouting. And then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. So we come to a more uh, pleasant time in Israel's history when now they're coming back from exile after this long time away in captivity. And the people here are reminded to remember the promises of God, that God had not given up on them. And so this is really a resurrection of a nation. And um, that's what Ezra and Nehemiah are talking about. It's bringing this, this, this nation back to life. And um, the theme there I have on the front of your handout, God is renewing the covenant by restoring His people the temple, true worship, and Jerusalem. But it's not the same, and it doesn't fulfill all the great prophecies. Thus, His people still look to the future. And that really should be what you come away with when you read through these two books. That it's not fully satisfied. All these prophecies have not fully come to pass. They still have more to look forward to. That these promises that came to Moses and Abraham and to David are still to come. So, now they're back in the land, but still looking forward to the future. On the back of your handout, I have an outline there for you um, that basically combines these two books into one. Like I said, Ezra probably wrote these as a one-volume work, but we split them up uh, just recently. I think um, it was the Middle Ages when they were actually split between Ezra and Nehemiah. Prior to that, they had always been recognized as one book. Well, let's get into the book and see what it's about. The first two chapters of Ezra focus on God's faithfulness to His Word and His promises and, and therefore His plan of redemption. Look at verse 1 again. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Did you notice there the reference to the prophet Jeremiah? 
that word that the author is referring to is from Jeremiah chapter 29 where God had promised that the exile would last for how many years? For 70 years. And there, just as God promised, 70 years later, the people of Israel are now uh, reaping the benefits or, or seeing this thing fulfilled. That God moved in the heart of Cyrus to return the Jews back home. And we also see in verse Five that God worked in the heart of the people as well. Look at verse 5. Then the head of the father's households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. So what we see there is that God doesn't just work in the king's heart, but He works in all the people's hearts. That's where uh, the source of of uh, turning towards righteousness come from, comes from. Verse 7 uh, reads like this, Also King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. Remember, they took all the um, the uh, accoutrements that went along with the temple, all the, uh, the, the vessels and the bowls and everything, and he was using them for his own goods. And I think, uh, who was it? Uh, trying to think in Daniel who used those for a wedding feast. It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. Who was the other guy there in Daniel? Belshazzar. Thank you. Yes. So now what's happening is Ezra's bringing those back to the temple where they belong. And uh, so things are really looking up for Israel spiritually. Look also at verse 2 where we see the, the mention of a man named Zerubbabel. What's significant about him is that he represents, if you remember from last week in Chronicles, he represents the continuation of David's dynasty, of David's descendants. And we saw that, that in 2 Samuel 7 that God had promised this, this, uh, this great covenant with David. He, he made this great covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17. And we also saw, saw how God preserved that Covenant. He didn't break that covenant at any point, even through difficult situations. But then, at the end of Second Kings, it looks a little bit uh, dire. The circumstances don't look so good, as the Davidic line seems to be almost completely broken off, and only one king is left in his as a descendant of David's, and and he is even taken off into captivity. And so you're left thinking, what is going on with the Davidic covenant? And um, turn back to First Chronicles chapter three because I want to remind you about. Uh, just want to point out to you that this is something that was promised in Chronicles and then actually fulfilled through this man Zerubbabel. That the the Davidic line, the the dynasty, the descendants of David continued on through this man. You see in First Chronicles three verse one that we're talking about the sons of David. Okay, so we're talking about the descendants of David. And if you follow the account down to verse 19, whose name do you see there? Zerubbabel, right? In other words, the Zerubbabel that we see in Ezra 2 is the kingly descendant of David and now he's participating in the, the rebuilding of the walls of the temple and the rebuilding of the, the walls of Jerusalem. And uh, so now you can turn back to Ezra. I just wanted to point that out to you that Zerubbabel is no insignificant figure here, but that he is actually a continuation of, of David's line, of God's promise to David. 
And so while the, the, um, the promises of God seem to be hanging by a very thin thread, they still hang. They're still there. God had never given up on His end of the, the covenant. It was the people who were, were, um, were, were going against it. Well, even though the son of David is back in the land, Jerusalem is still not in the perfect situation. Remember, they're still under Persian control. Cyrus is the king. And, um, and, and so we see our first example of excitement that is still not quite all that it was expected to be. Um, notice in chapter 2, verse 40, that, that uh, of, of uh, Ezra, that the Levites are also a part of those who return to Jerusalem. And it's, that's important because the Levites are the ones who... Uh, are of the priestly line. They're the ones, the sons of Aaron, who take care of the temple and and all of the uh, rituals that are going along with that. And so, not only is the city restored and the people are brought back, but also the the priests as well. And remember, the priests are important, but they also ultimately couldn't take away sins. They could only cover sins, and um, because the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. You need the blood of a perfect sacrifice. Alright, so that's Ezra's, Ezra chapters 1 and 2. Any questions on that or on the review of, of the kingdom or uh, of the, um, the Jewish people up to this point? Alright, well, chapters 3 through 6, um, we see that the other things needed for their worship besides the priest, are an altar and a temple. And so we re- read of their construction in chapters 3-6. through six. And you remember there's obviously some unfriendly opposition there in chapter 4, and they have to work with both a sword and a, and a trowel really at the same time. The work was completed in 516 B.C., a little bit over 20 years after the people's return. And we see this climactic event in chapter 6, verse 22, come to uh, really a climax in verse 22 of chapter 6. Important time in Israel's history. And they observed the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had caused them to rejoice and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the, works, in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel." The Feast of the Unleavened Bread is um, is the same feast as the Passover. Um, it was a time when they would remember back to the Exodus and how God had passed over. Remember, He passed over the house of those who had the blood on the door. But then following that, there were seven days of unleavened bread, which is where they would remove the leaven from within their house. They could have no yeast in their house at all. And that was to symbolize that they needed to be removing themselves from sin as well. That was the, the idea there. So, so now they're back to celebrating this feast here in Ezra chapter 6. So this is a, a fitting time of worship and, and we see there in verse 22 that God was the one who placed that in their heart. But even though it seems uh, pretty good, turn back to chapter 3 because all is not perfect. Chapter 3, verse 10. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets 
and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the direction of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet, many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard far away. What was going on here? Many people, it seems, were very excited about this new temple and rightfully so. Many of them had not seen, particularly the younger crowd, hadn't seen the temple at all. They'd heard about it, perhaps, from their fathers and so on. But but what we find in verse 3 is that the older men remembered the original temple. And was there a greater temple than Solomon's temple? Right? Not until, obviously, Jesus Christ comes, but but Solomon's temple was the greatest. It, it was it was uh, adorned with all sorts of gold and and um, and it was just as as uh, as great as it could be during that time. And so these men looked back on that, and that's why you see that they look at this new foundation. And while they may be uh, happy that at least they're back to the temple, they also reflect back on the old temple and are a little bit uh, saddened by. The, uh, the new one not being as great. Remember, their promise was that, that, that they would receive a temple that was greater than Solomon. They're looking at the foundation of this new temple and they're thinking, this isn't greater than Solomon's. We remember Solomon's and this isn't it. And so what they see is they still need to look forward to the future. Well, at the beginning of chapter 7, the story takes a big leap forward in time. We see the uh, time marker there. New king comes into uh, power. And um, this actually is now in 458 B.C., about 60 years after the completion of the temple. So we take a several de- decades jump forward. Here, Ezra the priest is leading a second wave of exiles back to Jerusalem. And... Um, Notice what happens there in verse 10. We see Ezra's motivation, chapter 7, verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. I think we would all do well to learn a lesson here from Ezra. Notice, Ezra studies and practices the Word of God before he presumes to teach it. We all should be people who are teaching the Scriptures to whomever we come in contact with, to our families, to our uh, obviously even people within our own church. And before we should presume to do that, we should study it and practice it for ourselves. Notice again, the king's heart is also in God's hand. Chapter 7, verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as as this in the king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. When Ezra arrives back in the land, however, he's a bit disappointed. He finds that many of the Jews had intermarried with the surrounding pagan nations. 
he wasn't necessarily wrong to marry foreigners except that they were followers of false gods. That was the point. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 1, Ezra's not too happy to find this out. Now, when these things had been completed, the princes approached me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands according to their abominations. Those of the, of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, and the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe, and I pulled some of my hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Just uh, verse two is just talking about different ways, or excuse me, verse three is talking about different ways that he showed grief, like we saw last week with Job. And um, so, did you notice there that what he was concerned about is that the holy race, the the race, the seed—that's that's literally the word there. The 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 holy seed has actually been tarnished now. You remember the seed was promised back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 that the seed of the woman would crush the, the seed of the serpent. And Ezra's recognizing that, that it is um, actually being intermingled with, with uh, evil. And if Satan often can't kill God's people as God only can give him permission to do that, um, just like in the exile, he couldn't kill off all the Israelites, but he can pollute their worship. And so that's what he often seeks to do. And, and you will find that that happens even today. That if he can't kill the followers of God, then he'll try his best to pollute their worship. So like everything else we've seen, the author wants us not to feel content with his return. Like, okay, we've arrived. We're back in Jerusalem. We're all set. He wants us to yearn for more. In fact, it's part of Ezra's prayer in chapter 9, verse 8. But now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in His holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. That God would grant us reviving in our bondage. Bondage to what? Aren't they back in Jerusalem? What kind of bondage are we talking about? Look at verse 9. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia. So what kind of bondage are we talking about? Okay, could, could be that, but what does verse 9 say? Okay, they're, yeah, they're basically still under the authority of the kings of Persia. We don't have our own king over us. We're still following after these pagan kings. And so we're still seeking relief. We're still in bondage, although we're, we're, not, we're not in captivity in, in Babylon necessarily. Now we're in captivity in our own hometown, is basically what he's saying. And so there's still a look forward to what's, what's still to come because. Certainly, this can't be all that God has promised to us. All right, any questions on Ezra? All right, Nehemiah, chapters 1 through 7. Here we see another phase of reestablishing the people back into the land. Jerusalem was the most important city, obviously, in the Davidic line and for their worship. Um, but now, after a hundred years, 
of returning, of having returned, its walls, the walls of Jerusalem, are still broken down. And so this means that the people are vulnerable to enemies coming in, both militarily and morally. Remember, there's a problem with intermarriage and so on. So they're trying to build the walls back up of Jerusalem. So Nehemiah, who is a government official still serving the Persians, hears about this and he cries and sets himself to pray. And what's interesting about his prayer is that he begins with confession of sin, of his sin and Israel's sin. You see that in chapter 1, verse 6. And that's the premise for what he prays in verse 10 of chapter 1. Let's read that one together. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Just like so many others we have seen, like David and Moses, what Nehemiah appeals to is that the ultimate goal for all things is God's glory. Nehemiah says, Answer my request, God, because of your own glory, because of your own greatness. Okay, He appeals to God's greatness in chapter 1, verse 10, and then he says in the middle of verse 11 that I want to... or your people want to delight in your name. Well, in chapter 2, Nehemiah sets out to return to Jerusalem a little over a decade after Ezra had returned. And when he gets there, he's able to convince the people, rally the people around to rebuild the walls. Look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 20. So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we His servants will arise and build. Did you notice the combination, the the placing together of these two ideas that we've talked about before? God's sovereignty, right? See that? Where do we see God's sovereignty in that verse? Verse 20. God will give us success. And we see immediately following that, Our responsibility, human responsibility. So God is sovereign over all things. He will give us success, but we also must work. Okay, We also must rise and build. That's what it says in the verse. And what's interesting about this is that whenever you see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility together in Scripture, they're never defended or they're never even explained how they work together. We simply have to believe that they work, uh, that they are both in existence. Neither one of them is compromised nor ignored. Now, what we would expect to read is this. In the middle of verse 20, it says, we would expect it to read, the God of heaven will give us success, therefore we His servants should sit back and let God work. Or, we should sit back, we should let go and let God. You've heard that phrase before. But, but instead... Here is what Nehemiah says, and this is what you're often going to find in Scripture. Because God will give us success, we must arise and build. Okay? Therefore is the word that's used there. Therefore, we His servants will arise and build. So, if you have ever questioned that, uh, that doctrine of God's sovereignty, okay, how can I possibly be responsible? Or maybe you believe it to the fact where I don't have to do anything. Then you've actually missed the point. When you understand 
uh, God's sovereignty rightly, you will not be lazy, but you will rise and and uh, and work for Him. In fact, those people who try to to maximize God's sovereignty to the point where they become lazy would do so uh, just because they already are lazy by nature and they just want an excuse. Well, God's sovereign over all things, so I simply need to do nothing. And so that's about the most ungodly thing you can do with a good biblical doctrine like we see here. It's just shameful. Um, well, obviously, the, the other extreme is to to ignore God's sovereignty and say that we're responsible for everything that happens and we can't do that either. Some some way, the Scriptures balance them together. Both God is sovereign and we have responsibility to do something. All right. Any questions about that or about Nehemiah so far? Right. That's a good point. Yeah, you could be a monk in a monastery, never do anything practically for God and... Um, you know, be praying for all the hours of the day and not be doing what God wants. Now, obviously, there is something to be said about praying without ceasing, yes, but we should also be working while we're we're praying without ceasing. It's uh, um, sometimes a baffling thing to think through, but what you need to recognize is that God is in control of everything and that that does not breed, it should not breed complacency. Well, in chapters 3 through 7, the Jews again experience opposition from their neighbors, um, but they do prevail, as Nehemiah was confident that they would. And this section ends with these encouraging words in chapter 7, verse 73. Chapter 7, verse 73. <clears throat> now, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants in all Israel, lived in their cities. And when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in their cities. It's kind of an uh, interesting way to put it. I mean, if you think about how long that they had been gone and what an exciting time this must have been for them, it probably reminds you of Joshua when they finally enter the land of Canaan for the first time and, uh, and then they're all placed into their various uh, regions. Well, chapters 8 through 10 has us uh, come to the part that everything else has been tri driving towards, and that's the reestablishment of the covenant. You see that in chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which is in the front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all that who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square which is in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Skip down to verse 7. Also, Jeshua, uh, Bani, and all these people down through the Levites explained at the end of verse 7, explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. <coughs> Excuse me. They read from the book from the law of God translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. So, upon hearing the law read and explained, it says in verse 6 that they shouted, Amen! Amen! But then in verse 9, it says that they wept. Surely, it was because they realized that they had broken the law that they had just read. And they reflect back on what they have done and it caused them to have an emotional reaction. Look at verse 11. 
So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day uh, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. What I wanted to point out here is that that often when we hear the Scriptures read and explained to us, it's often met... Uh, our emotions, our emotional response is often one of both joy and contrition, or sadness. Sometimes that that we're that we're convicted about our own sin or our own condition as an individual or as a church or as a nation, and that's not a bad thing, because contrition we're, we have contrition or sadness because of what we hear, because we recognize that we have sinned against a holy God but also joy because we know that we have been reconciled to Him through Christ. And so there, there's this mixed feeling like we see here in Nehemiah. Well, in the rest of chapter 8, the people celebrate the Feast of Booths, which is another festival to commemorate the Exodus. <coughs> and um, then in chapter 9, the priests lead the prayer in a very moving prayer of confession. And finally, the long renewal process is complete when the people bind themselves again to God's covenant. Look at chapter 10, verse 28. Chapter 10, verse 28. Now the rest rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to be... To, to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding, are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord and His ordinances and His statutes. So we have it. The people are back in the land. They've renewed the covenant with God. God Himself had never wavered on His... Uh, on his end of the covenant, but they had, and now they're renewing it. And um, so we're coming to see that God is fulfilling his promises to them. But they still are violating the Sabbath, so it's not perfect. Look at chapter 13, verse 17. Chapter 13, verse 17. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you're doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same? And so on. Did, didn't you learn your lesson? Okay, now you're starting to disobey the covenant already, and so everything's not perfect. And then verses 23 and 24, there's more intermarrying going on. And so, again, we have this age old problem that this law is not good enough to satisfy all of their needs. They need a law that's written on their hearts. And so there's still a greater salvation to come than they had in in their day. And uh, obviously we know what that salvation is about. Any questions on Ezra and Nehemiah? This one volume work by likely this priest Ezra? Yeah, Phil? I'll take a comment too. Yes, right. In the name of uh, maintaining truth, and, and and maintaining righteousness within the place of worship, he was uh, very concerned about that. So that is a good point. Well, we need to hurry. Uh, Esther is the next book, and I did want to give some time to it. Um, 
Esther is written about the same time between 483 and 473, about a half a century after the first wave of exiles come back to Jerusalem. And um, but this, the events here in this book do not take place in the land of Jerusalem. Okay, these Jews that we'll read about are still in Persia's capital, Susa, and there they leave. They live as as a work and work as a minority group. And so you would expect, because they're away, that there are many enemies that they are facing there, and yet still God delivers them. Now, if you know anything about Esther, you know that God, the word God, is not used at all in this book. And so what exactly is it doing in our Bible? What's God's purpose in it? Well, I think it's like many things that we see in life. It is uh, the fact that God is often hidden. We don't actually see... Uh, God physically work. Sometimes we don't see Him, well, at least in our day, we don't see Him miraculously work. And so, we have to recognize that He's still there and He's still working. And that's what the theme is. That God is sovereign, though God is hidden. There's no such thing as pure coincidences or luck or uh, fate uh, or chance. God is working in everything. And so, while God is invisible, the faithful often wonder if He's even there, if He's actually working at all. But it's important to remember that God's acts of providence are in the world and need to be understood as they are seen or as they are realized. And uh, if we think about it, not all of the Old Testament saints were able to see God work in miraculous ways. And, and sometimes they only saw Him occasionally. It wasn't like they saw God working every single day. There were long periods of time where God wasn't working visibly. And so even people like Abraham and Moses and David and Isaiah and Daniel um, had to trust in God's hidden providence. But the fact is, he was working and he was there. And so let's look through this um, narrative of Esther briefly and I'll point out a few things as we go. Well, the first two chapters uh, tell us about a young Jewish girl named Esther as she rises in King Ahasuerus' favor, um, made her the queen. This is also the same man as King Xerxes, same name. Her cousin, Mordecai, just so happens to overhear a plot to kill Ahasuerus, and so he informs Esther to alert the king. Well, the plot is stopped, and um, and then uh, Haman comes along and uh, is offended because Mordecai won't bow down to him and give him homage. Um, and so to take revenge, what does Haman do? Right, he builds a gallows, I think it's 75 feet tall, and uh, gets ready to hang Mordecai. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. So he seeks to pass this law. Um, Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. Alright, so here it comes. The Jews are going to die. All of them are going to be killed on this specific day. Mordecai gets the king to put this in the law, 
And then in chapter 4, Mordecai discusses with Esther what she can do to rescue her people from the sentence of death. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Notice two things in in these verses. Number one, verse 14, Mordecai is certain that God's people will be delivered. Right? He says, if you don't do it, Esther, then deliverance is going to come from another place and you and your houses are going to be destroyed. But why don't you be the one to help rescue, to help save uh, the Jews? At the same time, he's also encouraging Esther to step up. And that's the second thing we see. Mordecai believes that this this uh, divine act that's about to happen is going to happen through this woman. He says, maybe God has spared you for such a time as this. Remember, he doesn't know. He hasn't received any formal uh, revelation from God, but he knows that God is real and that God works. And so he says, Esther, maybe you are the one. Um, in chapter 5, Haman and the king are invited to Esther to, uh, to a bank- banquet with Esther. But the night before, Mordecai angers Haman again, and so Haman decides he will go after Mordecai, and so he has these gallows set up. In chapter 6, we read that that very night, the king just so happens not be, to be able to sleep, right? So you see God's hidden providence there. That he, and so what does he have, have uh, someone do for him? Right. Bring me the book of Chronicles of my life and my reign. I want to read about it. And so he, he has it read to, that, to him. And um, I mean, what else is a king supposed to do when he can't sleep at night? So um, you, uh, you, of course, want to read your own story, how, how, how your whole life has been going. Anyway, as he's reading, <clears throat> he discovers something that he didn't know. Look at chapter 6, verse 2. It was found written that Mordecai had reported concerning Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, and they had sought to lay hands on him, the king. And the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done to him. Hmm. What perfect timing, right? Mordecai is about to be hanged, and yet... The king can't sleep. He reads his own chronicles and comes upon this event that took place with this man who's about to be hanged. In fact, look at verse 4. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. But before Haman can ask, you remember, he says, Haman, what should I do for someone who I really, I really want to honor? And, uh, of course, Haman thinks he's talking about him. Instead, he's talking about Mordecai. And so this is what happens in verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. And so Haman did it, we see in verse 11. I mean, how despicable for Haman to have to do this to this Jew that he absolutely hated and wanted to see killed. Well, in chapter 7, Esther reveals that she is a Jew. No one knew up to this point, at least the king 
and Haman didn't know. Um, and so she pleads with the king to spare her lives and the people's lives. And as the king finds out that she is a Jew and that all these other people are, he says, you know what, Haman, you are the one that needs to hang on these gallows, not Mordecai. And so as a result, chapter 8, verse 17 tells us that many people became Jews, that is, proselytes. They, they, uh, it was basically like an evangelistic type opportunity as a result of what happened through this um, sparing of these people. And the author's point of all this is found in chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews ha hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary so that, that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. Okay, It's a really changing of plots or a changing of, of themes. You expect that the Jews are going to be destroyed and completely wiped out from this Persian <coughs> land. And yet instead, we read in chapter 9, verse 1, that the very opposite happens. They actually gain favor in the land. And so the point of all this is that God zealously protects His people and that even if it's not explicit, that God's fingerprints are on everything. And so those with faith with, uh, with uh, people like Mordecai in chapter 4 know that there's no such thing as chance or fate or luck. And so what we should do when it comes to things that are going on in this life is to look for God's fingerprints and you will find them. They're all over everything. Alright, any questions on Ezra through Esther? Alright, let's uh, close with a word of prayer. We'll finish up the last three books of the Old Testament and move on to the New Testament in two weeks. Thank you for your attention. And uh, let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your sovereign work over all things. We thank You that uh, not only do You work, but You also expect us to be at work as well. And, and even when we do, we can't take the credit for us. We are simply a lump of clay in Your hands. And uh, so we don't want to question what You're doing, but we do want to be faithful to You and be vessels fit for Your use, that we would be tools in Your hands that You can use to accomplish Your purposes, which is to make Your name known. And we pray that You'd help us to make Your name known in this service to follow, that we would reflect Your glory in the way that we show love to other believers and the way that we show love to even outsiders, perhaps some unbelievers that may be here today. May You uh, be honored in how we honor You and honor our Savior, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.